Okay. I want to thank Giselle for, for sponsoring tonight's uh, session. We're going to learn in memory of Ira, uh, Yitzchak Dov Ben Svi Mendel on his yard site. Okay. And Shemesh Davin Aliyah. Well, tonight we're going to discuss the synagogues of Jerusalem. Next week, we'll do, two weeks, we'll do the yeshivas, but tonight we'll do the synagogues. So the oldest continuously functioning synagogue in Jerusalem is actually the Karite synagogue. We're not going to talk about that one. <laughs> That's been around almost a thousand years. Uh, and it's located basically next door to one of the synagogues we're going to mention, the, uh, the Nissen Beck uh, or Tiferes Yisrael synagogue. But the second longest running is the Ramban synagogue. And the Ramban synagogue gets its name from Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, the Ramban himself, Nachmanides, who came to Jerusalem in 1267. However, it would be historically inaccurate to say that the Ramban synagogue, where it is now, was his shul. It's given in, in, in his, his name in, me, in memory of his, uh, his significance to the, to the course of the Jewish history of Jerusalem, but he actually davened in the limited time he was there from 1267 to 1270 on Mount Zion, which is outside the current walls. But at that time, there were no walls, remember. This was before Suleiman rebuilt the walls. So on Mount Zion, there was a synagogue for the Jewish community of Jerusalem, and Ramban was there. But in the year 1400, they moved to their current location, which is just below the Churva, like, like in the ba- adjacent to in the basement of, the, of what became the Churva. But the Ramban synagogue was destroyed in 1474. It was rebuilt in 1475. And it functioned for the next 110 years until it was closed by the Ottomans in 1586 because it shared a wall with a mosque and they got all religious fundamentalists for the time being uh, and shut down the synagogue. After it was shut down, it did not operate for a very, very long time. And that site was used for various mundane purposes. Now, you know, there's a Mishnah that talks about if you sell a shul, what are you allowed to sell it in order for it to become? Right. And there are certain uh, uh, unseemly things for which you could not sell a, a synagogue property for the next bu- for the buyer to use it for that purpose, whether to make a rope factory, to make a latrine, a stable, whatever it is, can't do it. But the halacha is you sell it for whatever purpose, like uh, stam, without any particular intention, and whatever happens, happens, and it becomes a Korean church usually. Okay, yeah. The money is supposed to be used for davish bekedusha malin bakodesh veimarim. You go up the ladder, you can't go down the ladder. Okay. Well, it was used as a flour mill. It was used as a cheese factory, and was at one time used as a mosque. In 1948, it was destroyed, and it was reopened in 1967. And for the past 55 years, there has been the Ramban Synagogue in the Jewish quarter, uh, in the site where it is now. And I'm sure many of you have been there. I dove in there. The first time I was in Israel, I wanted to see the Ramban Synagogue. I dove in there. I never was back after that. The second Ramban Shul, named for the first one, was opened in 1948 in Katamon. Um, And that shul has developed some renown or become infamous, depending upon your persuasion or your hashkafa. Uh, it was uh, built in 48, rebuilt again in 2005, and it's a very progressive Orthodox shul. It's, uh, it hired a, a, woman, a woman leader in 2015, the first Orthodox synagogue in Israel to have uh, essentially a woman rabbi. 
Well, that's the, the second Ramban Shul, not to be confused with the first Ramban Shul. Who's the rabbi? Uh, well, Binny uh, uh, was the rabbi there for a while. I'm, I'm not sure if he still is. Um, after the Ramban synagogue closed, the Sephardic community of Jerusalem needed other places to pray. And so the closure of the Ramban led to the emergence of Arba'at Batei Knesiot HaSfaradim, the four Sephardic synagogues. Now, if you've been to the Jewish quarter, who can tell me where the Arba'at Batei Knesiot is located? So it's up the hill a little bit. If you're by the, in the Churva Square and you're facing down towards down the hill towards the Kotel, if you go to the right, there's a neighborhood and there's you know, narrow alleyways, and you go up about a half a block, you'll see a sign for the four Sephardic synagogues. What are the four Sephardic synagogues? Well, the first one is uh, Eliyahu Anavi, built in 1856, uh, 1586. And it was known by the name Eliyahu Anavi because Elijah the prophet was once the 10th man for a minute on Yom Kippur. You heard that in the Tevra too. Okay. But that was average. Now, I, in Anshi Shalom in New Rochelle, had a, a very similar experience. We once had a 10th man. No one knew who he was. And I gave him an aliyah. And I'm the Balkore in my shul. And I could hear him whispering along the aliyah as I'm laning. And your average synagogue goer can't really do that. All right, They're supposed to say along with the Balkore, but most people, let's face it, they can't. He knew it, and he knew the trup too. And then I heard him singing in a cantorial style uh, when we were doing Avinu Shabbat Shemayim. So I said to him, would you like to daven Musaf for the Amud? And he reluctantly said yes. And it was the greatest Musaf I ever heard in my life. And then I was going to ask him what his name was and give him a Yashikoach from the pulpit. And he stepped away for Enkelokeinu for a kid to get up there. He was gone. We never saw him again. Eliyahu Anavi Davin for us. Okay, so that's the Eliyahu Anavi synagogue. But the truth is that in the Eliyahu Anavi synagogue in Yerushalayim, it was not really used on a regular basis for uh, prayer. It was only used on Yom Tovim. For the most part, it was a place of learning. It was also known as Kahal Talmud Torah. If it's known as Kahal Talmud Torah, because the focus was on, on, on learning. So where was the davening going on? Well, the Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai synagogue was the uh, the largest of the Sephardic synagogues. It eventually became the seat of the Chacham Bashi, the Sephardic chief rabbi. And it was purportedly the location where Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had his base medrash before the destruction of the temple in 70. So here they're claiming, this is where the Tana Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai learned. And we'll build a shul in his memory. Uh, it was below street level. It's below street level now. Although there's some, some question whether it was originally below street level or what happened. The street elevated with time as layers of civilization pile up. So what was once at the street level now is six feet below. Okay. It's famous for having two Aron Kodesh. One for Sifrei Torah, a lot of them, and one for the other Sfarim of the Tanakh. One Aron here, one Aron there. And it was the largest of, of the four. The breakaway was the Istanbuli synagogue, which was made in 1764. And as you could gather, the Jews from the Istanbuli synagogue came from where? From Turkey, from Istanbul. And then later Kurdish Jews from Kurdistan came, and then some North African Jews. And it was another significant Sephardic uh, synagogue. 
The last one of the four was the Emtsai Synagogue. Why was it known as the Emtsai? And don't tell me because they weren't left wing or right wing. They were like, you know, centrist, the, the, the old Kadima party. Um, no, it was Emtsai because it was literally in the middle. It was, there was three synagogues and there was an open air courtyard that was the, the, you know, the gap in between them. They eventually put a roof over it and made it the fourth synagogue. So it's now one large complex, but you don't have to go outside from synagogue A, B, C, and D. Supposedly, it was the location of the Ezras Nashim, the women's section of the Yochan ben Zakkai, and they eventually turned it into its own shul, the Emsai Synagogue. Okay. All these synagogues, of course, were shuttered after the Jewish quarter fell to the Arab Legion in 1948. And for 19 years, these four synagogues were used as donkey stables uh, by the local Arabs. Uh, they were brought back to life post-67, and now all of them function to one degree or another as synagogues, and there's a museum to the four Sephardic synagogues. Uh, it's, uh, I, next time you're in Jerusalem, I suggest you go there. It's an interesting place with a lot of history, too. Okay, now let's go to the Ashkenazic synagogues, and we'll spend much of our time on them. The first one I want to discuss is, um, is the Churva. What's the story with the Churva synagogue? So Rabbi Yehuda HaChasid, not of medieval times, but Judah HaChasid of the uh, 17th century, arrived in Jerusalem in the year 1700 with 500 Ashkenazic Jews. Sadly, for himself and for his community, what happened to him? He died like three days later after arriving. And his community did not really know how to establish themselves in the Middle East, not knowing the language, not knowing local custom, and not having a leader to guide them on the right path. So his followers struggled to establish a financially viable community in Jerusalem. They ran up a lot of debts. And in 1721, the Arab creditors despaired of being repaid, so they decided to take vengeance against the Jews. How do you take vengeance against the Jews? You burn down the shul. You burn down the shul. And so it was left in ruins for the next 116 years. And because it was in ruins, it became known as the Chorva, meaning of the ruin. Ashkenazim were expelled from Jerusalem, while Sephardim were allowed to stay. Some Hasidim showed up in 1747 and 1777, and the Prushim, who were the disciples of the Vilna Gon, came in 1808. These competing Ashkenazic groups all had one desire. They wanted to grab hold of, lawfully, or maybe not so lawfully, the site of the churva and build a shul for themselves in their own image. Meaning my kind of shul. Not what was or what you want, but what I want. So each faction is competing, but there is a caveat, there's a catch here. They want the rights to the property and to build the shul, but they don't want to be saddled with the old debts that are still sitting unpaid in connection with that property. Okay, so as a result, a lot of time passes and nothing gets built. Okay, well, they needed an imperial decree, a firman, um, from Constantinople, from Istanbul, from the, the Ottoman government, to permit them to build this synagogue. And yet the Ottoman authorities were consistently objecting to the building of another synagogue, Ashkenazic synagogue in Jerusalem. 
1831, Egypt annexed Jerusalem. It's this is the breakaway from the Ottoman Empire. We discussed this at length a couple of months ago. Uh, under Muhammad Ali or Mehmed Ali, uh, Egypt controlled much, much of Eretz Israel as a breakaway from the Ottomans. And this was a new opportunity for the Ashkenazim to beseech from a different authority the right to build a shul. And they got it. The Pact of Omar had prohibited the building of new synagogues. But after an earthquake in 1834, the rules were relaxed. And under this more relaxed environment, permission was going to be granted for the building of a grand Ashkenazic edifice. So an ambiguous consent decree was given by Muhammad Ali to Avraham Shlomo Zaman Tzorif in 1836. Sadly, Tzorif was killed by an Arab with a sword to the neck in 1851. And Sorif used a, a, a ruse, a trick, to win a firman and support from, uh, um, uh, from, the, from the Egyptians and from the Ottomans for the right to rebuild the synagogue. By, and he got support from the Austrian consul general by claiming that he had backing of the Viennese branch of the Rothschild family. Now, you don't mess with the Rothschilds. The problem was he made this up completely. There was no backing from any Rothschilds. He lied. But having lied, he got permission to build the synagogue. Now they needed to raise money. And the money didn't come from Rothschild. Who raised the money? Which wealthy Jew traveled to Jerusalem multiple times in the middle of the 19th century? Moses Montefiore. So Montefiore is now raising money for an Ashkenazic synagogue in Yerushalayim. At first, there was a modest little shul titled, the name was Menachem Tzion. Uh, after the, the Brach on Tishabov, Menachem Tzion, built in 1837. Another little shul was built in 1854. But the rebuilding of the actual Churva site did not happen until after the Crimean War. Why after the Crimean War? So if, we, if you know your history, we discussed this in the past. The Crimean War was a big disaster for the Ottomans. They lost in a major way and had to offer concessions, capitulations to the European Western powers on account of having lost the war. And what do the European powers want in Jerusalem? They want goodies and perks for their people. The Germans want it for the Lutherans, the, the, the English want it for the Anglicans, the French want it for the Catholics, and the wealthy European Jews want it for Judaism, for Jerusalem Jewry. Everybody has their agenda that they want the Ottomans to allow something that previously had not been allowed. Of course, from a Jewish point of view, what was the ultimate? Going on the Temple Mount, which they had to give in, and Jews were allowed on the Temple Mount. Okay, so permission was granted um, to build a new synagogue for the 2,000 Ashkenazim now living in Yerushalayim. The groundbreaking was in 1855. The cornerstone was laid in 1856 together with Rabbi Shmuel Salant, who was the, uh, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, and rich Baghdadi Jews, especially the Rubin family, devoted or donated half the money for this construction. They donated half of the one million piastres that construction was going to cost. This was an Ashkenazic shul? Ashkenazic shul, yeah. Baghdadi was not Ashkenazic. Understood, but yet... but Rubin was Rubin? No, they were Baghdadi, they were, they were Iraqi. So, Ruveni. Okay, so th- remember, Montefiore also is not Ashkenazic. He's really a, he's half Sephardic, uh, really full Sephardic. He's Italian, Italian. So, uh, 
building a shul for a community that needs it is the agenda of the broader Jewish community. The Sephardim have their synagogues. The Ashkenazim need theirs. So you don't need to be Jewish to like Levi's rye bread. You don't need to be Ashkenazic to support an Ashkenazic synagogue. All right. Well, they named the synagogue officially Beit Yaakov. It was Beit Yaakov. Uh, named in memory of James Rothschild, the father of Edmund Rothschild, the Nadiv Hayadua, the famous benefactor of Zionism. And the shul was dedicated in 1864. The shul was built by Asad Effendi, who was the con- uh, construction manager. And it, the, it was built with a dome 79 feet high, with a double arc that could fit sif- 50 Sifrei Torah. 50 Sifrei Torah could fit in the arc. The golden years of the Churva were 1864 to 1948. The chief rabbis were appointed there. Herbert Samuel read the Haftorah there on his first Shabbos in Jerusalem as the high commissioner. The yeshiva Eitz Chaim was housed there, which we'll discuss in two weeks. We discuss yeshivas. And then it was destroyed. We discussed how it was destroyed, the fall of the Jewish quarter, on May 27th, 1948. It was blown to pieces by Fauzi al-Qutub, who was the demolition man for the Arab Legion, who had been trained in explosives by none other than the SS during World War II in Germany. So here, uh, Arab Nazi blew up the Churva. Was the architecture the same from the outset until 1948? I know afterwards they copied it. Uh, there wasn't much done to the structure in the 80 years that it existed. It was they, what they built was what existed in the by the 1940s. Now, plans to rebuild the Churva after 1967 stalled, and there was a debate about restoring the original look or having a much more modern look. Because of this machlokis, nothing happened in 1977. In the absence of rebuilding an actual synagogue, a commemorative arch, 52 feet tall, was built. I must say, in my childhood, and I didn't, I never went to Israel as a kid. I didn't go to Israel until I was 20, 20, almost 21. But in my mind, what was the Jewish quarter? The Jewish quarter was the arch of the Churva. That's what, in my mind, in the pictures, was the Jewish quarter. A synagogue that didn't exist, but the memory of it existed in this, you know, St. Louis type arch. Okay. In 2000, a decision was reached to finally rebuild the shul. But there was a dispute between the Haredim, the secular, and the Datilu Umi about what should be in this spot. The Haredim wanted a plain old shul, that's it, nothing else. The secular and even the Datilu Umi crowd wanted it to be maybe a synagogue, but also a museum to the fate of the Jewish quarter of, of the old city of Jerusalem in 20th century times. In other words, to tell the story of 1864 to 1948, to tell the story of 1947-48 and the loss of the Jewish quarter, and to tell the story of the rebuilding. However, the desire for a museum was scuttled, okay, and it never happened. What was built and what which opened on March 15, 2010, was just a simple Ashkenazic synagogue. And by the way, I've davened there a few times. I happen to like the aesthetics of it, but I don't like the shul. I don't like the davening. It's not a not very friendly place. You, you, nobody will say hello to you. Um, so I, I, I tend not to daven there. I daven the mincha twice. Um, so it's a great place that it exists, but it's not for me. Now, the Palestinians 
in the decade between the decision to rebuild the Churva and its rededication, its opening in 2010, complained bitterly about the falsification of Jerusalem, the falsification of Jerusalem, that this is not the true Jerusalem, that the Jews are building something big and grand, but it's a, it's a fabrication, it's not the real deal. Of course, it was. It's a it's a rebuilding of what had been for a hundred years. But it's, Palestinians wanted donkey poop on the ground. I, I don't know, but that's the real. Jordan. But the, the the Jordanians complained. Not only the Palestinians, but the Jordanians who have an interest in the Temple Mount and like the Mishraim and all the affairs of Jerusalem, they complained about unilateral Israeli moves in East Jerusalem, and they said this was uh, uh, the first step towards the takeover of the Temple Mount. One has nothing to do with the other, but then again, the Palestinians and the Jordanians have a habit of making up Babamises that A equals B, when A has nothing to do with B. So uh, the rebuilding of a classic synagogue in the Jewish quarter has nothing to do with developments on Har Habayit. Fine. That's the story of the Churva. Now let's go to the story of the Tiferes Yisrael synagogue, which is only down the block, uh, one block away from the Churva. After all, the whole Jewish quarter is like two blocks. So the Tiferes Yisrael Synagogue, a.k.a. the Nissenbeck Synagogue. Who was Nissenbeck? A very interesting character. He was born in 1815, died in 1889. He was a chassid of the Sadegura uh, branch of Hasidus and a leader of the old Yishuv, Yishuv Hayashan. He was a publisher and he was a masculine. Now, something's a little bit off there to be a um, uh, a Sadigura Chassid and a Maskil is like a Tarti de Sasmi, is an eternal contradiction. Okay, but the Jewish people are, are, are a funny bunch, and you can be two things at the same time. He was a Maskil and a Sadigura Chassid. Yes, yes, yes. He, he had eclectic intellectual interests. So he was a Chassid of the old world and was devoted to the Rebbe, but he also was a publisher of newspapers and, and read modern literature and built a big shul and raised money. He was a man about town. So Hasidim began arriving in Jerusalem in 1747, as I mentioned before. But they prayed in a little shtibel and had no major synagogue of their own. In 1839, um, what happened was... Uh, In 1839, a decision was made to build a large synagogue. So Beck traveled throughout Europe to raise money. Remember, the Jews of Jerusalem have no money, but the Jews of Eastern and Central Europe, they might have some money. And the Hasidim are usually willing to give generously to a cause that the Rebbe supports. If your Rebbe is in favor of it, the money will come. So he went to consult the Rabbi Yisrael Friedman, the Ruzhner Rebbe. And the Ruzhner told him, that Tsar Nicholas I of Russia was about to buy a plot of land near the Kotel to build a church, a monastery, and a missionary center. This was all true. This was not Baba Misa. This was true. That Nicholas and the Russian Tsars, the Romanov dynasty, were very obsessed with Jerusalem. and They wanted to get a toehold or more in the city. And they were going to buy prime real estate not far from the Kotel. So the Ruzhner told Beck, you got to outbid Tsar Nicholas and buy that property. And guess what? He did. He, he increased his offer, and the Arab sellers sold him the land, and the Tsar had to settle for a different parcel of land outside 
the walls of the old city in what would become the Russian compound. So the Russian compound, which today is by the Iria, and the, the, the old jail was there, and the museum for the, for the soldiers. So the Russian compound is a huge, is a huge place just beyond the, to the north and west of the, of the city walls. But that was a, a, a backup plan. The initial plan for the Russians was in the Jewish quarter. Okay, so Beck buys the property, and they're raising money for construction in the 1850s. Problem is, they found the grave of an old Muslim sheikh, and they needed permission to move the bones. Classic Israeli problem. I want to build. What do I find? An old cemetery. You know, Israel's a small country, and everybody who was ever alive in the old days is dead now, and their bones are somewhere. They're buried somewhere. You're going to find bones everywhere. And everybody was a sheikh and a rabbi and a priest. Everyone was a holy roller. So wherever you turn, there's going to be some sacred ground. They had to spend money to bribe the authorities to move the bones of the sheikh to another location. Now, Beck was an Austrian citizen because he came from Galicia. And because he was not an Ottoman citizen, he was an Austrian citizen, he needed to get permission, a firman, to build. And he received help from Emperor Franz Josef I in order to get this permission. There's a legend involving the emperor, Franz Josef. The legend has it that... um, and this legend isn't true, by the way, but they tell, I'll explain to you why I'm telling the story, even though it never happened. That in 1869, Franz Josef came to the Middle East to uh, attend the dedication of the Suez Canal. Who built the Suez Canal? The British and the French collaborated on the Suez Canal, and they, they, they together they operated it for a million years until Nasser took it over in 56. So all the, the, the leading figures in Europe including some heads of state, went for the the dedication in 1869. On the way to the dedication, he stopped off in Jerusalem. And he saw that the Nissen Beck synagogue, which was the Teferis Yisrael synagogue, had no roof. And the emperor said to Nissen Beck, uh, Mr. Beck, why does the synagogue have no roof? Now, the real answer was because they didn't have the money to build, to, to, to construct it yet. It was an open-air synagogue because they were, they were broke and they couldn't afford to finish the construction. So Beck, being a chacham and wanting to take advantage of the situation, he said the following, the synagogue took off its cap to honor your majesty. <laughs> and having heard that, the emperor made a huge donation, and he said that the, he hoped the roof would be finished soon. And ever since then, the dome of the Tiferes Yisrael synagogue became known as Franz Josef's cap. Now, that story never happened, but he did give a donation. And that's why it was known as Franz Josef's cap. But he was never actually in Jerusalem. It's just a funny story. They built the shul. Yeah. They had, they were, people were very poverty stricken. Yeah, yeah. But the shul was so important. I, I don't quite understand it. In other words, you don't, a shul, it's important to have a shul. Yeah. But not the biggest shul in town. When you go to the one in, in you see the, what, the bell? Bells, bell, bells, the huge base yeah. And go around, give money for that? If you gave money for education, for a hospital... Okay, so you're on to something here. But it just so happens that certain sects of Hasidut have sort of a Quaker instinct of simplicity, and others have the polar opposite approach of grandiose religion, and that the Rebbe should live large. The Sadigora dynasty and its sub-branches 
over the years, to which Heschel was a member, okay, believed that Judaism should be regal and the Rebbes should live a regal lifestyle. And the grand synagogue has to really be grand. Not everybody agrees with that, okay? The Transylvanian Hasidim didn't have that approach. The, the Hungarian Hasidim didn't have that approach. Uh, but certain of the Polish Hasidim uh, in Galicia did, okay? So, now, what happened next? The synagogue was inaugurated in 1872, and for 75 years, it was the center of Hasidic life in the old city. During the War of Independence, it was a Haganah stronghold in the southeast corner of the Jewish quarter. It was destroyed by a large bomb set off by our old nemesis, Fauzi al-Khatub, the, 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 the Arab Nazi, on May 21st, 1948, about six days before the Churva was destroyed. The Haganah was able to counterattack while the Arab irregulars were looting the silver drapery and the Torah scrolls. So this was, a, it's an interesting part of the War of Independence. The, the, the First Israel Synagogue was, a, was a, a lookout post for the Haganah, and they knew they were going to lose it. But they figured correctly that they could recover it because the valuables inside the shul, once visible to the Arab irregular fighters, they'd engage in, in wild looting. And while you're looting, what can you not do? Shoot back, kill. Okay, and so they were able to oust them and get back to the shul, but they had been destroyed. Um, it was kept in ruins even after 1967. And the decision to rebuild it was not taken until 2012 by the, by the Jerusalem municipality. And it's still currently under construction, or at least it was the last time I was there a year ago. Is it still under construction? Anybody been there recently? I don't know. It's as you go down the hill from the Chorva, so it's on the right side of the street. And there's a scaffolding, and it's near the bagel store. Wikipedia, uh, I just yeah, still under. still under construction. So when I go in July, I'll still see it's still under construction. That in the Knesset Museum, I'll never get to see it in my lifetime, you know. Um, okay, now let's talk about my favorite shul. We're going to get to the modern synagogues. The Yeshurun Central Synagogue on King George Street. When I, when I go to Israel, God willing, I should be there in a few months. I always dive in Yeshurun on Shabbos and sometimes during the week as well. So what's the story of Yeshurun? Louis Lober came to Jerusalem in 1920. He was British-born and had been living in the U.S. and decided to make uh, the Aliyah to, to Eretz Yisrael. He worked as a secretary for General Ronald Storrs, who was whom? The governor, the military governor of Jerusalem. And he davened at the Churva, but he didn't like it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm not the only one who didn't like the Churva. Now, what did he feel was missing? he felt that the churva was missing congregational singing and a youth department. Basically, what did he want? He wanted the young Israel. He wanted a young Israel. Uh, in Israel. And he was young. A young Israel. Well, he looked outside the walls of the, of the old city for a modern shul that had congregational singing, decorum, and an appeal for the younger crowd. And he found that no such synagogue existed. Not only did no such synagogue exist, but people told him such a synagogue could not exist in Yerushalayim, that the city is not ready for it, that it's too modern an idea, newfangled idea, and we're a conservative lowercase c community, we're not going to go for such things. So you shouldn't bother trying to create such a synagogue. And yet he persisted and ultimately uh, was successful. What happened so, first of all, 
did did that kind of a synagogue exist anywhere in the world in 1920? Orthodox synagogue. So the origins of yes, Borough Park had the origins of the modern Orthodox synagogue that appeals to the youth and has decorum, no schnuttering, and no no schnuttering, no selling of aliyahs, decorum, and congregational singing, and clean, no spittoons where people are spitting all over the floor. That kind of a modern synagogue begins in New York City with the Jewish Endeavor Society in 1901-1902, where student rabbis from JTS, at the time when it was before Schechter, when it was still basically a nominally orthodox place, went downtown for the, the, the Lower East Side uh, immigrant community, and they gave modern decorous services to the younger generation. And the fathers would all tell the children, oh, that's a trafe shul you went to with Kaplan, it's a trafe shul. But it was, it was a modern Orthodox environment. In 1912, that became the Young Israel, and the rest is history, the Young Israel movement. But So in New York, you had the notion of a modern Orthodox synagogue. But what about in Yerushalayim? Could it exist? So uh, some of the old timers yelled at Lober and said, we're not going to support you. However, he, he's decided to do it anyway. The minion began, Parashas Noah, 1923. So we're talking October of 1923. But he was very careful not to start the shul without permission from the two most important rabbis in Eretz Yisrael at that time. Who were they? Rav Cook and Rav Zonenfeld. So with the support of the chief rabbi, the Zionist chief rabbi, and Rav Zonenfeld, who represents the old world of the Haredi community of the Yeshiv Yashan, they agree, okay, you can do this. You can try it out. Another group was beginning to conduct services around the same time. And it was led by none other than Judah Magnus the first president of Hebrew University, a reform rabbi from America who made Aliyah and was the, you know, the, the great builder of the university. So they were meeting for prayers and readings. Notice I don't say davening or tefillah. Prayers and readings. So this was a very avant-garde group. Uh, it was reform there was women's participation, and there were Hebrew translations of spiritual readings from other, from other religions. So this was Hebrew language for the very modern university types who want some spiritual service. They're not secular. They're just not orthodox. And they're very far from orthodoxy, but they want to have a synagogue of some kind. So these competing groups, Lober's group, which is orthodox, and Magnus's group, which is not, are starting around the same time. The Orthodox minion won out over the liberals, and the liberals disbanded and joined the Orthodox minion. How do you like that? And Magnus himself became a member of the shul and gave his son a bar mitzvah at Yeshurun. So here, the Reform Rabbi Magnus from San Francisco, a graduate of Hebrew Union College, and the founder-in-chief of the Hebrew University, gives his kid a bar mitzvah in an orthodox shul. You should not be surprised by this. You should not be surprised by this because over the the last 150 years, there have been many uh, intellectuals beyond the orthodox orbit who, when it came time for prayer, preferred the traditional synagogue. 
All right. Uh, my dad on the, uh, is watching from home, so my dad will know exactly what story I'm about to tell. The story of Eugene Barowitz. Okay, Professor Eugene Barowitz was a reform rabbi and a professor at J- Hebrew Union College, JR campus in New York, a great philosopher of Judaism. Reform, but a Jewish philosopher. And what did he do? He lived in Port Washington, and he came every Shabbos to the Great Neck Synagogue. And everyone liked him, shaked his hand, good Shabbos, Professor Barowitz. And what did he do? He would stay through chakras, through Torah reading, and through half Torah. And after, what would he do? He would get up, go to the coat room and get his coat, and go home. Why? Because he didn't daven Musaf, because Musaf is not reformed. So he wanted to daven an Orthodox shul, he just didn't do, the, do, do Musaf. But I just give that as an example of reform intellectuals who could find a spiritual home in an Orthodox synagogue. Magnus had that happen for him. He was not the only one. Who else davened in this early uh, iteration of Yeshurun? Henrietta Zold. Henrietta Zold, about whom we've spent a few sessions in the past. We did a biography of her a couple of years back. So Henrietta, she was born in 1860 and in Baltimore. Her father was Rabbi Benjamin Zold, a moderate, sort of middle-of-the-road, sort of left-wing conservative, bordering on reform rabbi. And she went to JTS as a student, even though they didn't admit women, she was enrolled as, as a student anyway. And she was the, the editor of the J- Jewish Publication Society. She was a very important founder of Hadassah. She did many, many important things for American Judaism. But then she made Aliyah in 1920. And she lived the last 25 years of her life in Yerushalayim as the leader of Hadassah. Um, so what happened? She also wanted a synagogue. Not a reform synagogue, because she was a, bit, a traditional Jew herself. You know, she was nominally Shomer Shabbos. She kept kosher. Uh, she wanted a modern religious synagogue. And she went to Yeshurun. And guess what? She sat behind the Mechitza at Yeshurun. How does this compare to her prior synagogues? So her father's synagogue had mixed seating in Baltimore. When she was living in Manhattan in Morningside Heights at JTS, she davened in the Stein Chapel Synagogue of JTS, which had no machitza but separate seating. Uh, as per the, the, the ruling of Solomon Schefter and, and Saul Lieberman, there was separate seating but no machitza. But yet in Yeshua and Yerushalayim, she sat behind the machitza. This, you know, a, a feminist, the founder of Hadassah, sat behind the machitza. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it looked like then. I can tell you what it looks like today. It's a nice machitza. Nice. Okay. Yeah, if you do it right, it looks okay. Okay, so let's get to the issue of labels attached. You're right. They resisted affiliating with any national or international organization, lest that affiliation brand them as being a certain type that would then alienate anyone who's not that type. Okay, so Rabbi Israel Leventhal, um, the, the minion moved around a few times between 1923 and 26, generally speaking in the Rechavia neighborhood. There was a need to build a building, but the funds were lacking. Jerusalem was a poor community. There weren't a lot of rich Jews in Jerusalem. Rabbi Israel Leventhal showed up for a visit in 1924. Where was Rabbi Israel Leventhal, the rabbi? At the Brooklyn Jewish Center, the big house, okay? Israel Leventhal is one of the most important rabbis in America in 1924. 
Brooklyn Jewish Center goes on to become the most prestigious synagogue in Brooklyn. And he's a graduate of JTS. He's a conservative rabbi, but a traditional conservative rabbi. His father was Bernard Dove Leventhal, the president of the Aguda Sarabana. So here, an Orthodox father, a conservative son, and his daughter went to HUC and became a got a PhD. Uh, so uh, he went to Yerusha Sadoros. Okay, but um, he went to Yeshurun, and he loved it. This he said, this is great in Jerusalem, a modern religious synagogue. So he went back home to America and told the United Synagogue of America, the conservative union, okay, we got to raise money for that shul. And the Women's League of the United Synagogue gave $168,000 in the 1920s for this shul to be constructed without demanding an affiliation. In other words, we're giving out the goodness of our heart, and you'll do with it whatever you want. You don't have to be part of the United Synagogue. Okay. Could you so, translate the current dollar value, or you don't know? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know, but $168,000 was real money back then. So, not like today. Not like today. Uh, so the Minion refused to join any umbrella organization in Eretz Israel or in the United States. Land was purchased on King George Street because it looked like that was going to develop into the city center. And it did. The cornerstone was laid in the spring of 1934. Just before completion, unfortunately, they ran out of money. This seems to be a habit of shuls to run out of money about midway or two-thirds of the way through the construction. But unlike in the case of the Nissenbeck situation with Tiferes Yisrael, where the, 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 the emperor from, from Austria showed up with a donation, there would be no such emperor coming this time. And yet, miracle of miracles, they were saved. What happened? A South African Jewess by the name of Rivka Bernstein died. Okay, old lady Rivka Bernstein passed away. And in her estate, they found $30,000 worth of government bonds in, in, buried in, the, in a trunk, okay? And in her will, it said that her money should be given to a Jerusalem synagogue. Didn't say which Jerusalem synagogue, a Jerusalem synagogue. So here, out of, out of nowhere, miracle of miracles, $30,000 for a Jerusalem synagogue. Who gets to decide which shul gets the money, yeah? $1,764,000. There you have it. Okay, 1.7 mil. All right. That was the bigger number. That was the bigger number. Yeah, yeah. But the 30,000 is not, nothing to sneeze at. So who's going to decide who gets the money? It's 1936. Who's the, the boss of Judaism in 1936? Who just became the chief rabbi? Rav Herzog. Rav Cook died in 1935. Rav Herzog was elected chief rabbi. So they turned to him, which synagogue should get uh, Rivka Bernstein's money. And he said, Yeshurun, to finish the construction. Okay, fine. If the chief rabbi says so, that's the way it is. Now, the name of the synagogue was based upon the Pasuk, So the reference to Yeshurun is a reference to Jewish unity. However, it should also be noted that the United Synagogue of America, the Conservative Synagogal Union, founded by Schechter and, and Cyrus Adler in 1913, also was called Agudat Yeshurun. Agudat Yeshurun. So it, it was in part named after their benefactors and in part named after the Pasuk referring to Jewish unity. Huh? Atas Yeshurun. Atas Yeshurun, yeah, sure. 
Now, this the circular building which they constructed, which you can see from the street you know, on, on King George, was designed to resemble the Kerem B'Yavne of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, the, the, the vineyard of Yavne, which was the academy of rabbinic study after the destruction of the Second Temple that Yochanan ben Zakkai built in Jamnia at Yavne. So that's the goal, to rebuild that sort of look. There were two seats on the eastern wall, on the, the Mizrach wall, that were set aside for the chief rabbis, the Ashkenazic chief rabbi and the Sephardic chief rabbi. After 1948, another seat was added for the Nasi Hamadina, the president of the state of Israel. Although, interestingly, the president of the state of Israel tended not to daven in the Yeshurun synagogue, even though it was the Yeshurun central synagogue and wanted to regard itself as the central synagogue of Western Jerusalem, there was another synagogue that captured the attention of the president, known as Beit Knesset Ha Nasi, the president's synagogue, which is about three blocks away. The Beit Knesset Ha Nasi, which still exists now, I think Rabbi Goldbuch's son is the, is the rabbi there now, uh, it was one of my classmates years back at YU. Uh, so that is a, c- a competitor synagogue. But Yeshurun, adopted the Nusach Ashkenaz, which is rare for Yerushalayim to have a Nusach Ashkenaz. However, the Havaras Fardit, the modern Hebrew pronunciation, and it's the Minhag Agra. In certain respects, the Vilna Gons customs are, uh, are preserved, as is the style in many Jerusalem congregations. Um, the Chazan, and I like a Chazan, I like to hear a little Chazan, this is Asher Heinovitz. He doesn't do too much Chazanus, but enough to make me happy. Uh, and it's a, a very welcoming Hamish kind of place. You don't go there if you want to see and be seen. That's for the great synagogue, which we'll address in a minute. It's a place for the locals and some tourists, but uh, it's a very nice community-oriented synagogue that is involved with chesed, tzedakah, and learning, and shiurim. And they also emphasize zimrabit sibur, congregational singing. Okay. Do they repeat? Trying to think, do they repeat? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. Now let's go to the last of our synagogues, the Great Synagogue of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Great Synagogue. So the Jerusalem Great Synagogue is located flush against Heichal Shlomo, the old seat of the chief rabbinate. And the Heichal Shlomo had their own minion for a long time, but it was a small little minion. It wasn't an elaborate shul. And at some point along the way, the thinking was, we need to build a grand synagogue for Jerusalem, not for the local community. Everybody has their own shtibel or preferred house of worship. But we need to have a glorious synagogue for tourists, for the Jewish visitors to Eretz Yisrael. And by the, early, by the late 70s, early 80s, travel to Israel was easy enough with direct flights that people were coming in large numbers, wealthy Jews from America and from around the world, including people who like to be seen at an illustrious synagogue. Okay, so there's a certain vainglorious aspect to the whole thing, even while there's also the Shem Shemayim component. Who donates the money? The Wolfson family from England are the primary benefactors, and the Jaffe family... Uh, are the people on the ground in Yerushalayim, Maurice Jaffe, and then his son Zali Jaffe and Eli Jaffe, uh, uh, the conductor, Eli Jaffe, who play a dominant role in synagogue affairs. The rabbis play almost no role. There was a rabbi, but he was a marginal figure. 
the chief rabbis would sometimes come to daven there to give big speeches on special occasions. But the main focus of the synagogue was what? Chazanut, cantorial davening. And they hired Naftali Hershtik. Naftali Hershtik became the chazan in the early 80s, okay, and remained the chazan until about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So he had a long run as the chazan of the great synagogue. Aside from the chazan, there's also the choir. So the choir, led by sometimes uh, Eliyafi, sometimes Raymond Goldstein, was probably the most famous cantorial choir in the world, and was all Jewish, as opposed to some of the cantorial choirs in America, which are secretly half Gentile, but we won't get into that. All right, so it was a, a very prestigious choir, and all the great cantorial pieces would be preserved in this institution. So the davening would start at 8 o'clock, and the davening would end at 12 o'clock. A four-hour Shabbos davening. Now, for your average Israeli, that's like a human rights violation. Okay? Um, but if you're a, a Chazanus lover from Chutz Aretz, or one of the locals who up to like Chazanus, this is your place. After Hershtik, then Chaim Adler became the Chazan, and now I'm not even sure who they have. They have a rotating cast of characters because they have financial issues, and they, they don't think they can afford uh, a regular Chazan. But this glorious institution had to rely upon outside money. There was no local money, really. So you'll see on the board, and you walk in from Toronto, from Montreal, from Mexico City, from Panama, from New York, from L.A., Chicago, big, you know, big name donors. It's a who's who of Jewish philanthropy in the late 20th century. So if you want to ever raise money for a cause, go to the Great Synagogue, look at the bulletin board, and just write down some names, and you can get yourself a good roster to solicit. Okay, but the money was always tight. And I'll just tell you one experience that I had in the Great Synagogue. It gives you a flavor for what it's all about. I was on my honeymoon in 2009, and I davened in Yeshurun. And it just so happened that Shabbos, Kanta Helfgott from Park East was davening. It was in the summertime, July, uh, August of, uh, of uh, 2009. And I was working at Park East at the time. And so I told Helfgott I was going to be there, you know, uh, sa- save a seat for me. Because I know it's going to be a big crowd. So he left message with the, the security guard, let Hoffman in at the door, you know, if he comes. So I figured, I'll daven in Yeshurun. It's Mavarchim Chodesh. I'll get, by 11 o'clock, I'll get to the great synagogue, and I'll hear Mavarchim Chodesh and Musaf at, at the end. I get there. There's a stampede at the door. Why? Because everyone wants to hear the illustrious Chazim. And the room seats 1,500 people, and it was full. And there were a few hundred people by the doorway trying to get in. This is like the old days of Kusevitsky in Borough Park, where they were banging on the doors to get in. So somehow I was able to slip through the crowd, get to the security guard, give him my name, and I was sort of pushed in, and I made my way to the front. And I didn't have a seat, but I went almost all the way to the Bima, to the Amud. And they were up to Musaf. Rav Lau had given a speech, because the chief rabbi sometimes would give speeches. And then they were davening Musaf. And during the cantorial sec- uh, uh, section of Shema Yisrael, of Musaf, where the Chazan was doing the, the, the rendition of, of Glatz, Shema, I was singing along with the Chazan. Now, in Park East, in Manhattan, that's considered mutar, that's allowed. But in Yerushalayim, in the great synagogue, it's Yaharag Ve'ayavur. Like, you're not allowed to sing with the Chazan. You have to be absolutely silent and listen to the cantor and choir. So the culture is different. The cantorial culture in one country over another 
is not the same. I need. I didn't know that until because I hadn't been there before. You got to find out. And then the davening ended around one o'clock. It was a, a, a tremendously long davening. But and this is what I wanted to tell the story. Within two minutes of the davening being over, like the like the ball drop in Times Square, where the sanitation trucks are already clearing out ten minutes later, and everybody's gone. A million people are gone. Within two minutes, 1,500 people were gone, and the lights were off. Why? To save on the electric bill, because the shul had no money, despite being this prestigious institution where all the machers want to see and be seen, still, they were out of money. And the, 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 the emergency shut off, turned the lights off to save money on the electric. So the great synagogue is great in certain respects, but almost sadly pathetic in other respects. It's in disrepair now. Yeah, yeah. And they can't afford to fix it up. And the state, the, the municipality doesn't do much for them. The state doesn't do anything for them. So they're on their own. It's, uh, it, it, it does not have the local support that you think it might, it should. It was an international venture and it remained that way. I don't know if they charge for a Shani Yom Kippur. They probably do. Um, but their main method of collection is when, when, when someone comes in who looks like they're an important diaspora Jew, they're given an aliyah, and when they get the aliyah, they get an envelope. And you're expected to return from that, with that envelope a nice donation, and the system works however, however well it works. Okay, we'll stop here. So we covered most of the major synagogues of Jerusalem, Sephardic, Ashkenazic. Next time, in two weeks, we'll discuss the yeshivas of Jerusalem, including collaboration between Yeshiva University and Merkaz Harav. What's the historic overlap between Bernard Revel's Yeshiva College and Rav Cook's uh, Merkaz Harav? Okay, stay tuned for next time.